Welcome to Tea Time Radio Theater. In this episode, we have the pleasure of discussing playwright Louise Bryant and her play, The Game, a morality play in one act, with one of our cast members. Please see the episode description for content notices. Enjoy the episode. everyone good morning good afternoon good evening good middle of the night if that's where you are hi Hi. i'm kirsten we have monica with us today hi and we have anna hello anna do you want to introduce yourself and your role yeah uh my name is anna ryala i went to college with these buffoons and i played life in the episode this week it was very fun thanks anna We do not have any of our other cast members with us, unfortunately, because they had other things to do. And that's okay. We're going to have a fantastic conversation without them. To start off today, I would like to know from each of you, what were your first impressions of the game? Well, I found this play like um, about a month before we recorded, maybe, maybe two months before, something like that. Uh, And I never heard of it before, which has actually been the case for most of the plays that we've done. Uh, I had not heard of most of them, and so I just frantically looking for one-act plays in the public domain. Um, And this was one of them that I was really excited to take a look at. I thought it was really interesting in a very, like, darkly humorous way. I was like, oh, this is very different than, like, any of the other plays that we've done in, like, lots and lots of ways. And I was like, yes, it sounds fun. And so I had a good time reading it for the first time and immediately sent it to Kirsten and made you read it. Um, We are like, yes, we're going to do this one. I thought it was, I thought it was like something that I'd read before. It felt familiar. And then when I saw the subheading of a morality play, I was like, oh yeah, I've studied morality plays. It felt very medieval, but like a modern take on a medieval form. And I loved the familiarity that life and death have with one another. And how much it feels like this game is ongoing between them and that it's not for lack of other words a life and death situation every time (laughs) it doesn't feel huge and drastic even though life cares but it's it would be like impossible to care so much about every person and i just thought it was really interesting how Life cares about these people more than kings, more than monarchs, more than, you know, legions of soldiers. And I just thought it was so interesting, like, how badly she wanted these people to survive. Yeah. Thank you both. Before we forget, tell me about what kind of tea you're drinking tonight. Well, I have a peach apricot, courtesy of my friend Bryn, sent it to me for Christmas. So thanks, Bryn. Shout out to you. I am drinking a sample that came in one of the boxes of tea that I ordered, and it is white vanilla grapefruit white tea. I have no idea what it's going to be like. It's just finishing up steeping. I'm very excited. I'll give you guys a review. 
And I'm particularly happy about my mug because it is a quote from Angels in America. And it says, respect the delicate ecology of your delusions. And I just think it's unnecessarily aggressive to have as a dish in my house. That is kind of a lot to wake up first thing in the morning, drinking your coffee, and then your roommate comes out and you're just like, good morning, with that plastered across your face. (laughs) Yeah, it's also like hot pink, the text. As it should be. Excellent. What are you drinking, Kirsten? I am drinking a black tea. It is a very basic black tea. I can't remember if this is the last of the tea that we bought in like a drugstore in Nepal or if it's the closest thing that we could find here in the U.S., but it's really good and I don't have much of it left, so I'm savoring it. I guess now I'm curious, what kind of tea do you guys normally go for? Are you more of like an herbal tea, a black tea, a fruity tea? For me, it depends on time of day. I tend to go herbal at night because of the caffeine. My favorite tea is a black tea called Paris tea, and it's really delightful, and it's a sweet kind of dessert tea, but it tastes kind of like a pastry, and it's really, really yummy with pastries. An herbal lemon we do love. I don't like really crazy fruity flavors, but I go through phases. Yeah, lemon's one of my favorite to drink at night. And I also like a good chai because then I can, you know, control the spiciness of it and I can add my own spices and make it how I like. My go-to is Earl Grey. That's been one of my favorites for the longest amount of time. And then I usually have three to five different chais and like a lemon ginger. I gotta go. Lemon is my favorite, like all day, every day. I have like peach and like stuff like that has like newly become like, yes, I love that too. But I also will just drink or eat lemon flavored pretty much anything. Monica likes lemon and Kirsten likes all the spice. You're the type of person where I wouldn't be surprised if you're just drinking homemade tea that you made with like turmeric in it. I would really like to. I'm not there yet. Okay. Um, But fun fact related (laughs) to lemon. I don't like lemon Meyer. It's just too boring. Not enough oh, ginger. I love that one. I know. And I Ugh. bought a box once no, so that Anna would it. have something to drink when she came over to my house and wouldn't complain about my teas. It was very sweet of you, and I enjoyed that it a lot. Sweet. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> okay. Shall we talk about Louise Bryant and the game, a morality Let's play in one it. act? Great. Yeah, of course. I had fun researching for this. And by had fun, I mean I realized I don't have enough time to learn everything I want to learn. And that's how it always goes. Louise Bryant was born in San Francisco in December of 1888. Shortly after that, her family moved to Reno to be closer to her mother's stepfather. He had a ranch there. Her father, Hugh, was a journalist and a minor politician. At some point, I think Louise was about four, he abandoned the family and vanished Her mother remarried Sheridan Bryant, and Louise took his last name. So as she grew up, she attended the University of Oregon, which at the time had about 500 students. This blew my mind. It has 20-something thousand now. It's a big school. But she went there, and she was an illustrator and a poet for a local paper, and that was where she did her first professional writings and professional publishings. She graduated in 1909 and moved to Portland. There she wrote for the Oregonian, which is the big Oregon paper. And she was also an illustrator and a society editor for the Portland Spectator. 
Sometime after she moved to Portland, she married Paul Trulinger, who was a dentist who lived on a houseboat and threw parties at his office. Depending on the source, these were either, like, nice cocktail parties or drug parties. Might have been a bit of both. Probably both, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to interrupt right now with an assessment of my tea. Yes, It's please. so gross. <laughs> oh, that's so it, disappointing. It smells pretty good, and then you drink it, and it's just, like, stabs you with grapefruit, but not, like, the good type of grapefruit, like, just bitterness. So it's kind of gross. Put them on blast. So I'm going to maybe add some more honey and maybe some, like, milk. I don't know. Back to you, Kirsten. Grapefruit and milk? Okay, good luck. I I want a second review. I really do bastardize my tea, and don't comfort. Okay. Also, side note. I love that this is a playwright who, like, is from the area that yes. we're all from. Yes. I feel like all of our other playwrights have been either British or they've been, like, from the East Coast, like, from New York. And no, so, like, I started reading and then I was yeah. like, oh, I know these places that yeah. she, like, was a young adult in. Yeah, that's so cool. Like, I've been to Reno a ton and I'm from the Bay Area. So, right. like, that's I so cool. I grew up around Portland. Yeah. Yeah. I love this. Sorry. Me I know. Too. I'm just, like, having no, a much so better much time. Fun imagining what her life was like because I actually like have more context for it. Yes. So it was shortly after Louise Bryant married Paul that she became active in women's suffrage. She was introduced to it by a friend of hers who was like, hey, you seem really bored and unhappy with your life. And she's like, you're right. Let's go do something about that. And so she started moving in more activist and artist circles in Portland sometime between 1914 and Christmas of 1915. Louise Bryant met Jack Reed, who is a poet and reporter with connections to anarchists and socialists. He, at the time, was living in Greenwich Village. He grew up in Portland, but had gone to Harvard. 1915, he came home for Christmas to visit his mother. And at that point, we know that they met. They declared their love. He went back to New York right after Christmas. And then she left her husband and moved there very beginning of the new year. Scandal. Oh my gosh. gosh. Louise. I thought, I was like, declared a love. I thought she was married. She is. So her husband Paul files for divorce. He gets that in the summer because she left. And everyone's okay with it. Except maybe Paul. I don't know what he thought about it. Wait, so she went from a politician to a poet? No. Her father was a politician. Her husband was a dentist. Who threw the lit parties? Okay. Paul is a poet and a reporter. Great. So they moved to Greenwich, and then in the summer of 1916, so a few months after she moves to New York, they are invited to spend the summer in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where our good friends the Provincetown players are. This is where Louise wrote the game, or when it was first produced. So that's where this play happens in the summer of 1916. Then after that, in 1917, Jack and Louise were going to, I think they were going to go to China, and then they were like, wait. America's about to enter a war. This isn't going to work. So they didn't. She went to France as a reporter. And she was there for a couple months. And then she comes home. Jack Reed meets her at the boat. And he's like, hey, we got to buy some winter clothes. We're going to Russia. So four days after she gets back, they leave. They go to Russia for, I think it was four months. Both of them are reporters. They're both working for several different papers or journals in the U.S., and so they are there reporting on the October Revolution and making friends. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. It, what? Interesting. Whoa. <laughs> I was like, what are oh, they doing in Russia? also the fact, 
Uh, the fact that she goes off by herself to France for a while? Yes. She just wow. goes off to France. She wanted to go to the front lines, but France wouldn't let her. And so she stays in Paris. I think it was Paris. And is just reporting on, like, everything she can learn and all of the, like, the people that she can talk to. And sending those back to the U.S. And then in Russia, they're meeting all sorts of revolutionaries and regular folks. And so after they come back, both of them published something. And hers was, like, this very uh, human interest of, like, this is what life is like for regular people. She had been tasked with writing from a women's perspective about, um, like, what's happening in this revolution. And Jack Reed's was very much, these are the things that happened. His is, a, his is a historian's account without much commentary, and hers is entirely commentary. And, like, this is what I think about this. So that happens. They come back to the U.S., and then over the next few years, they're both writing. They're both politically active, involved in trials. She's arrested for her participation in a women's suffrage rally at the White House in which they burned an effigy of President Woodrow Wilson and made speeches and generally didn't do what the government wanted. And so she and a number of other people were arrested and held for several days. I've got to say that's like super badass and like historically monumental. I kind of wish she'd gotten arrested for something stupid. Like something less Hacking cool. the intercom at the local high school and like reading her plays. I don't know. She's almost too I also, cool now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I know. Why is she like... She's so she's, cool. She's so cool. And one of the things I was reading said that she's not very well known now, in part, because she was at the front of a revolutionary movement and just kind of got, like, sucked into that. And now we don't know about her. So anyway, in 1920, Jack Reed finds out that he's probably going to get arrested in the U.S., so he sneaks out of the country, goes back to Russia. He was charged with conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government, was arrested on his way out, detained in Finland, and then transferred to Moscow. He sends a letter to Louise Bryant, and she has all sorts of adventures getting to Russia that I am not going to go into. But she gets over there, and they're there for a bit, and then he dies. Then over the next several years, Louise Bryant works as a foreign correspondent in Russia and Turkey and Italy and Greece and all sorts of other places. She remarries, has a daughter, and then is divorced, and then she spends the rest of her life in Paris. She develops this rare and extremely painful disease. Basically, she just deals with that for several years and then dies. So yeah, that's her life. What a cool person. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about how she was like, gonna get married for a third time. Love's not gonna leave me by the wayside. Go off. Also, my tea is way better with milk and honey. Because it's not as bitter and gross. We've talked about first impressions. We've talked about Louise Bryant, her life, who she is. And now I would like to know, what are some things that stood out to you in this play? Lines, ideas, what you got? When I first read it, the line that stuck out to me the most was life's last lines in the show. I must never let him know how much I mind losing soldiers. They are the flower of youth. There are dreamers among them. Because she she pretends that she doesn't care too much so that death won't get under her skin. But it just really struck me, especially in light of some of the recent current events, that every single individual matters. 
and that especially when this was written right in the midst of World War One, it was heartbreaking for everybody that there were so many people lost. And it has to be wearing for the character of life to lose over and over and over and over again. And I think that it really informs her character in this this show because life is trying to cling to hope, whereas death can settle comfortably in inevitability because of the inevitability of death. Everyone is going to meet him eventually, but not everybody is going to fully meet her. And so she is clinging to like these lovers because it feels more likely that she'll be able to meet them rather than the soldiers. And I just thought that that was really a poignant line. One question that I wrote down when I first pulled the script, and like again when we were recording, is I wonder if in this universe, if life and death were ever people, like turned into these eternal beings, or if they just always have been. Because some of the things that they say are just like, the most utterly human things in the world um, that I love. And especially life. Like you pointed out, Anna, like life always loses. <laughs> um, and like always, always loses. And that is like utterly human of just always losing everything. <laughs> just everything falling apart. But then also like dying is also the most human thing in the world too. So death is also along those. And they both, the two of them, seem very numb to like their role that they have in very different ways death is very cocky and like uses this like sardonic sense of humor um that is very funny to like talk about these really serious things but like kind of acts like they aren't that serious and i wonder if that really is how death feels or if that's just kind of the way that death has to be and like i said i wonder like what i would be curious to know what Louise Bryant imagined the origin of life and death was, like these two specific characters. Because I think that depending on what you think, that would change a lot about the way that they interact with the game and like their role in it. I was actually surprised when we read it how chill death was, how he wasn't really perturbed by anything. Um, I was expecting him to be more gruff and cranky and aggressive. Um, and then the way Cole played him was a lot more resigned and really inspired by his line, you play to win and I play for the for the fun of the game or whatever it was. And I, kind, of, kind of going off of what you said, I wonder how fun it is for him. In my character notes for life, when I was just kind of journaling about it, I said that she knows that death will get everyone eventually and it is much easier for him to play because of that inevitability. But he is not loved by all. In the short time she has them, her goal is to make people love her. And it just made me think, does does death want people to love him? And if so, like, how does it feel to have people fear him? Yeah. In this one, we also see people, like, they don't love him necessarily, but they are, like, longing for him. Mm -hmm. I wonder if to him mm -hmm. that's, like, the same thing. Which that is also, like, a very human thing. Like, if I can't mm -hmm. be loved, at least I can be, like, wanted. Yeah. But he says he also feels, like, betrayed because people change their minds so quickly. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as life can show them something, something fleeting but beautiful, they just stop wanting him. And so I think he feels like their desire is really fleeting. And just because he gets to keep them 
it's not as fun to win the game when it's easy. I would imagine that the way the game is played, the actual throwing of the dice that they do, is different depending on the situation of the person they're playing for. I imagine that that changes the fun of it for death. If death is playing the game for the game, it needs to have some variety. Kind of going back to that love of the game and what Monica was talking about, about them being human, I think it's wonderful to notice upon another read how much death understands love. Because when the two come in and life wants them to meet, he says, well, if you get one of them, then it's already half one then I will see them both soon. And then later, once she gets one of them, he said, well, if if you don't have the other, they will also come to me. Mm -hmm. And so he knows how human love and longing work, and he knows that they won't be okay apart from each other. And I just think that that's so interesting. And I wonder if that contributes to the fun of the game, because sometimes he doesn't have to win every soul he can just win one. And also life can only win one and then the ones that love that person will follow. And I just think it's that makes it so much more interesting to play for them because it's not always just a one-for-one one game. They talk about um, life tries to trade four monarchs for the two lovers and death says... Your two-for-one isn't fair because neither of us want them. He says, you're always trying to unload a lot of monarchs on me when you know I don't want them. Why, when you play for them, you almost go to sleep and I always win. Yes. No bargaining in kings, my dear. Yeah. And so between that line and death says, I am a sport and a gentleman and I must admit that life is as truthful as I am. Those two, I feel like, say a lot about how death feels about the game and how death understands humans and humans' relationship to life. Anna, I'd be curious to know what you made of their relationship to the whole thing about monarchs, and especially in regards to what you said about life's last line about the soldiers and everything like that. Yeah, that that line was one of the harder ones for me to deliver and to also understand, Um, specifically the line at the end about... Life saying how careless she was during the French Revolution, kings are my enemies. I think they don't want monarchs, possibly because monarchs, especially, you know, as a rule in like Europe, (laughs) monarchs fall constantly. People are always out to get them. They're always being assassinated. Their lives are so turbulent and busy and also cause many people's lives to hang in the balance sometimes. And so I think life wants to give up the monarchs because she's like, these people are causing wars. And death's like, I'm not going to trade for them because someone's going to kill them at any moment. Or they're going to kill themselves. Or they're going to, you know, bring on this other war that'll get me more people. And so I feel like there's just... a a really strong correlation between kings deciding who lives and dies. And so for that reason, death would rather deal with the consequences of the king living and life would rather have him gone. Neither of them win in a game for a monarch. No, because there's always another one. 
Right. And it doesn't change much. And no. It's interesting knowing that she had ties to socialism and Russia and communism, but knowing that like she had that background and that ideology, mm-hmm. at least that was a part of her life. We didn't get the specifics of what exactly she believed. Yeah, I think her background in politics is very telling. Monica, what were some lines that stood out to you? I really thought that the relationship between the girl and youth was really fascinating. And I love art that's kind of about art or artists. So one line that I pulled that I really loved was, she knows you by your songs. When the youth is like, there's nothing left for me. This person who you're talking about life, I don't believe that like she could possibly know me. I've been loved before, but like was left behind. Um, And life goes, no, but she does know you. She knows you by your songs. I just really love that line. I think that like, it's sometimes like maybe a little overused trope that someone like who gets your art is the only person who gets you. But there is also something that's like really, I guess, reassuring that like even when you feel like you hate your stuff that you create, there is someone out there who gets it, who sees that and goes, I know this and I know you. And I think that's always a fun insight too into the artist who created, like into the artist who created this play specifically and like how she feels about what does our art say about us as people. I would agree. It's a curious idea to think about and see what does this person's art say about them, and then also looking at their life and seeing how does that influence their art. And also, like, how it influences their relationships, too. Mm-hmm. Like, she left her first husband for a, a poet. She was married to this, like, person and seemed to have an okay life, but, like, when she saw someone who was also an artist, who she, like, got what he created and he got what she created, that is a bond that's not, that's just different. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Monica. And I think it also is telling how she, how the playwright sees different types of art. Because it seems like the poet, the youth is concerned with legacy, but also feels like someone who understands his songs understands him. Whereas the girl who performs on stage and has you know, hundreds, thousands of people witness her art. Those are the people at the stage doors, but she doesn't feel like they know her. And so I think it's also maybe a commentary on the power of the written word or producing something that's just from yourself rather than producing something that's on stage, that's directed by someone else, that's in the eyes, that's through another person's lens. So I just thought it was interesting that like the dancer who performs on stage doesn't feel seen or known by his audience, but the poet does. That's interesting that also then this play would be performed on stage. And even though the playwright is like giving a lot of insight into her own psyche, like it's like, no, this is also like completely fabricated. This is not a real scenario. And it's theater. So it has to be seen through many lenses at the same time. It has to be performed through many lenses as an audience member. It cannot be just one because you have everyone who's worked on it. Yeah. It's always a conglomeration of different perspectives and different people's artistries. I also love the moment that she dances to his words and they come alive to him in a new way. I just thought that moment was so beautiful where it's like he heard his songs again by seeing her dance. I love that. As a dancer, I love that. (laughs) That was one of the things that was very exciting about casting you and Alex, is that you are both dancers. 
I would love to stage this piece. It's public domain. You totally could. For free. That sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) Monica, do you want to talk about life and death and gendered characters? Sure. You get this as a dramaturg question. Yeah. So when we first found this, we kind of had some people who we were interested in asking being in the cast, but it was all women. And so I found this play and I was like, oh, we could definitely like gender bend some of the roles because like it's death. The concept of death is not inherently a man. (laughs) That was something that we were like talking about. But then the more that we looked at it and once I sent it to Kirsten, we were just kind of like, no, I really don't think that we should. I think that the dichotomy between having death be a man and life be a woman, especially given who the playwright is and what her background is, I think it's really important. She made that choice on purpose. And so sometimes when choices like I mean, obviously, any change that you make to any play is, like, kind of going against what the playwright wants, technically. And, like, that's a liberty you can take when something's in the public domain. But it doesn't necessarily always something that you should take. We decided that it was really part of the integrity of the play to keep it that way and have those, like, opposing forces be, like, highlighted even more through the gender and, like, the appearance of the characters as well. That wasn't something that I had words for at the time, but it was... I think we need to keep this as it is. I still have a lot of questions about the character of death and his relationship to women and the idea of women. And I'm curious about how Louise Bryant's life influenced that and the people she was around. Your thoughts, y'all? I think, I mean, just at the time, war was kind of a manly thing. Going off to war and fighting for your country and dying for your country was what the men did. And so I think that just the idea of death being the one to claim all these soldiers would make sense that it was a man. And I think also why life can't let herself care too much about the soldiers, because otherwise it would be too heartbreaking. I think that's how it was for a lot of the people back at home. All of the, you know, the wives and mothers and sisters trying to get by with their lives and step up when the men were dying. And I know it wasn't just men that were dying in war, but um, that at least makes sense to me why death would be a man Mm. and life would be a woman. And just, you know, the traditional view of women as bringers of life, I think also could have played into it. And then as far as youth and girl, I love that both of them were artists, just to contrast with the very pragmatic attitudes that life and death Mm -hmm. both hold towards the game and towards, you know, people's fates. It's a business deal. It's a bargain. It's a roll of a dice. It is a game. And I love that the people that they're negotiating with are abstract thinkers and feel big feelings and are, you know, dramatic and are vacillating between two things the whole time. I think that makes the game more fun and also more frustrating yeah. and also interesting because it shows that clash of those personalities. She does play a lot with opposites here. Like, life is a woman, death is a man. Life and death themselves are diametrically opposed. She talks a lot about love versus desire, mm-hmm. too, which those are could be connected or they could be opposites depending on like which way you took them. In this play, I think that they're very much treated as opposites and like not really being the same thing at all and youth and girl have very opposite experiences of love versus what is desire and like just an idea of what that looks like in their lives i think that the gender roles play a lot into that also life and death both say 
twice, each of them says it is the law. They have to play the game. And that stood out to me as life and death govern people in a way, and they are both governed by this law. Once it's come up, they have to play. And I think it, if I'm remembering correctly, for both of them, they say it is the law once when it's in their favor and once when it's not. Yeah. That's either one of the reasons why I think I would be so curious to know, like, the exact, like, laws and rules of this world that Louise Bryant created. Like I said, are they just these immortal entities that always have and always will exist? Or were they, like, I don't know, humans that are bound in servitude for the rest of eternity? Something like that. Because clearly, like, there is this law. Mm -hmm. And kind of what's implied from that is that they didn't make it. Like, life and death themselves didn't write this. Or there was, there's something else. There's something, like, other, like, higher power here. And I think that, like, if you kind of take that view, it changes your view on the characters of life and death. Yeah. At this point, I'm interpreting it as there is a potential for all of it, life and death and the game, to end. Uh, Life says, someday the dreamers will chain you to the earth and I will have the game all my way. And in this world, I think it could be. Or that optimistically it could be. If life wins the dreamers enough, if the dreamers live long enough, they could chain death to the earth. And both life and death are able to juggle the dice. They can and do both cheat on occasion. Or at least life does. I don't know that death has. I think he probably has. Because he said he is just as honest as life is. (laughs) Fair enough. For better or for worse. I love the idea that everything death has said about life also applies to death. This has nothing to do with that. But I was just remembering something that probably pissed death off that life is romanticized so much even with how fleeting it is because death warns youth at the beginning look at her a pleasing exterior a and yet you wouldn't be seeking me if you didn't know better alas my boy beauty is not even skin deep like warning him to romanticize the beauty in life And then even when youth is fighting with life, he says, if I cannot have love to warm me, I cannot create beauty. And if I cannot create beauty, I will not live. And then I just like just hearing death saying you cannot put your trust in beauty. And then youth claiming that he cannot live if he cannot create beauty, I think is so interesting because does death even want him on his team with such a sad fatalistic view like that? Like, is death like, God, this guy doesn't even know what's up. Is this just like a, I don't know, like a pity win? Or <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Or like spite? Like, like, how does he feel to be potentially getting somebody who thinks that there is no point to life except for beauty? Where death is like, I mean, yeah, that's what I told you. But also, what a bummer of a way to win. <laughs> I was like, I told you that, but you weren't supposed to believe me. Right? I, I Yeah. And I also like the way, pivoting again, before I forget, I also like the way it presents the liminal space between life and death as a game. Mm-hmm. And youth and girl kind of argue with life and death. 
And I think it's an excellent representation of that internal struggle and the fight at the end of your life to live or die. Because mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who've had, you know, near-death experiences or who have um, gone under for a moment and then kind of come back to life, whether it's like during a procedure or during an accident or something. And they said that it wasn't just like a one-way straight ticket and you're there. It is this weird fight and something inside you wakes you back up or it, you just give up. And so I think it's interesting that that struggle is personified with two people playing a dice game and then you also talking to them and trying to get the four on one or on whether it's better to live or die. I thought that was cool. (laughs) But ultimately, neither youth or the girl can participate in that game. Youth is frozen. Yeah. It doesn't happen in a way that youth can perceive except that he's aware of the outcome. Yeah, that was one of the parts that was confusing to me because Mm. while like the die is cast by life and death, youth and the girl were still persuaded to live. They decided that it was worth it as long as they were together. They can change the circumstances in which the game takes place and could change it so that it doesn't take place, except that death said by... Could it be that the game being won by life makes the reasons to be alive stand out in the front Mm. of their minds? Like it's a boost? Yeah. It's a boost of the reasons to be alive? Or it is, or it lessens the likelihood that they will be back soon? I think it lessens the likelihood. Um, Youth and the girl and life all thought that they'd won and then death says but in willing to die she laid her life on the knees of the fates so we must play for her it is the law so if the girl had not said that life would have won both of them and they wouldn't have had to play for the girl as well i guess in that point they are playing for the girl but the stakes are both of them um we are running out of time did either of you have more you wanted to say about art not really. I mean, I know you both have many more things you could say about art. You're correct. <laughs> That's true. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh! one thing that I loved was the fact that life and death are brother and sister. They're relatives. Mm. They come from the same family. And I love that. Just a brother and a sister playing a game that lasts eternity. <laughs> and that's why they're that's why they're so comfortable bargaining with each other. And so they know that they it's a war. It's it's a series of battles, but it's a war. And so they're comfortable losing some and winning others and bickering with each other mm-hmm. and calling out each other's sportsmanship. Yeah, and they know what to say mm-hmm. to bug the other one. Yeah. Exactly. Like when she says at the end, remember the sun, the healing sun is going to come out tomorrow, and he says, "Don't remind me about the sun." Enough about the sun! Maybe he is also the sun. With the S-O-N. That was the worst way to end an episode ever. And that's where we're ending this episode. You're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) Shut up about the sun. No.
This episode featured Monica Hash, Kirsten Schmidt, and Anna Ryala. Our music is by our friend Tyler Appleby. Follow us on Instagram at Tea Time Radio Theater Co. and be sure to subscribe. Thank you for listening. <laughs>